So I was, um, I don't know, kind of debating about what to talk about tonight. I mean, I have a, a, whole, a talk here of some kind. And then I was feeling a little cranky about giving it. Like, oh, I didn't know if I wanted to give the talk. Although I, I want to give the talk. I don't mean I don't want to, but but I was trying to... Um, but I didn't, it didn't feel quite current. So I was thinking about, well, what's, what's most current and how might that fit with the talk? So I realized I would talk a little bit about where I've just been and then see if I can lead that into the talk that I've brought. And where I've been is actually visiting my daughter in Denver. And my daughter's an actor and was performing in Denver. And, and um, had a had a big role in a play, and it was it was wonderful to go visit her and see see the play and see her work. And we had a we had a conversation at dinner, maybe the first night that I was there, and um, it, was, it was second night. We had this conversation. It was a very short conversation because there were a lot of people, and conversations were kind of coming and going. But she said she said something like well, how is it to raise somebody, you know, from a baby where you, you know, you take care of them all the time and you change their diaper and you, you know, and they grow up and then, and then you don't know what's, and then they grow up and they leave and you don't even know what's happening with them. And I said, first thing, of course, as a father, I said, what haven't you told me? <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was my first response. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And she, she laughed. <laughs> she said, "Plenty." <laughs> and, um, but it really, it was a, it's a beautiful question, actually. You know, how is it to be so involved with somebody's life, and and let that be a continual process of letting go? And because I said to her, I said, "Oh, it's like this," and I made this. I tried to do it actually physically. I said, oh, it's like this. You're like this at first. I, it's hard to see. I was trying to show a really small circle. And then it's like this, 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 this. In other words, one of the ways I've thought about parenting is it's like concentric circles. When the person's a baby, you have this very small circle. You really have to stay very, very close to them and very attuned to them. And, and very sensitive to them. And so the circle has to be very small. And then as they start to emerge, as they start to grow and develop and mature, you keep wanting to let the circle be bigger so they can continue to expand and become who they are. And, and, then, and of course, if you don't, they start totally pushing against the circle and you know, bumping up and making, making you expand the circle because they need that kind of space and so the circle just gets bigger until the circle in even though it's still there in some way it dissolves because my daughter is totally an adult at this point and you know doing her thing and working in her career and um, you know, has her life and I said to her, I said, yeah, it's odd. Sometimes I said, sometimes I don't even think about you at all. You know, and, I, and it's true. I mean, I just, you know, days go by and she's not exactly in my consciousness. 
uh, in the way she used to be when she was, you know, maybe 13 or 14 or 16 or 18 or something. Um, and so we were t talking about how that is to, um, what, what that is, what, if she wanted to know, well, how was it for me? And I said, oh, it's been great. It was great. It's such, a, it's, it's such an amazing thing to participate in somebody's life in that way, in that level, to know somebody from the time they were born. And, you know, she said, I guess she said it, oh, how, when she first said it, she said, oh, how is it to, you know, not even know what's going on after you made me? That's, that's how she put it. And I said, well, I, I don't think of it quite like that. I think, you know, I had my input, definitely. <laughs> but but what, what's here, what a person is, is not something that I made, right? I mean, even myself, I wouldn't say, oh, I'm not something I made or that somebody made, right? Are we something that somebody made? It brings up more, more poignant questions about who we are and who we are as we participate in one another's life on really many levels. So this is a very um, um, intimate level of participation when somebody's a baby and you take care of them and you, you kind of um, steward, you're the steward of their life for a while. And then that stewardship, part of that stewardship is to take less and less um, um, authority about how that life should go or what, what's supposed to happen, but to really let them emerge into their own life. And, I was think, and so I was thinking about this and I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about tonight because I wanted to talk about mindfulness, which I've been doing a little, I'm trying to do at least one talk a month on mindfulness practice. And, and I realized that I started practicing little more than 25 years ago, and my daughter's 25. And so one of the, one of the gifts of her birth and my parenting of her was that um, being a parent actually accentuates some of the best qualities of mindfulness. Having that responsibility to participate in somebody's life when they're a baby and when they're so uh, helpless calls forth uh, a certain kind of sensitivity, a presence that's important, a patience, uh, a capacity to stay present as things change, um, and sensitive to the changing nature of the experience of both the other and oneself, of course. And so I felt like being a father and being a parent was really a, also a tremendous support for the skills that I was learning as I started meditative practice. In addition to seeing the benefit of learning how to... Um, take care of myself through the meditative process. How to be sensitive to myself, how to restore and renew and refresh myself. Given that children are stressful just because that's the way it is, and of 
of course, it's not just children. There's also children, relationship work, you know, the whole catastrophe, as Zorba, the Greek, would say. Um, and so it was a great opportunity to practice the skills and the art of mindfulness in parenting, as part of parenting. And then, of course, to, to nourish myself by actually sitting, taking time to sit. And often, sometimes, when she was... And this really went on for a number of years. You know, I, you know, people. We all know how busy we are and how hard it is to find the time to be mindful. And this, I don't care if you're a parent or not a parent or whatever it is. Whatever your life is these days, most people generally are so busy that it's hard to take the time to sit. And so I would often combine it when she was going to sleep and she wanted me in her room. Unless she's a little older now. It, you know, one or two or three or four or five, and she would like me to stay with her while she's falling asleep, so I would make her a deal. I'd say, okay, I'll sit, I'll sit here with you. And so I would get to meditate, and she would get to feel, you know, more secure because I was in the room and, and fall asleep. But the, the piece that I, I think I want to emphasize is this participation in one another's lives because we do it on every level. Even now, we're participating in each other's lives. And we we kind of take it for granted or we overlook it. You know, if you weren't here, I mean, maybe I'd be here. (laughs) But I probably wouldn't be giving a talk. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's true. When I was, when I was at before I was a teacher, I used to facilitate a Kalyanamita group, a group, a spiritual friends group, and sometimes nobody would show up, and you know, and I would, sh- but I would show up because I was facilitating it, and it was great even when nobody showed up, because <laughs> I would just sit and it would be really good. But it was it was better when people showed up. <laughs> um, but there is this participation. And it's on many, many, many levels. And, you know, a little bit I'm piggybacking off of what we did last week, which is we acknowledge the volunteers here, who, which probably it was 50 people or more. I don't know how many people, more than 50, that we just, they were acknowledged and grateful for their service and the fact that they all participate, you all, many of you, participate as part of this group and and whether your participation is just coming to sit and that's all you want to do or you serve in some way not to overlook to be mindful of the phenomena of our interconnectedness and our participation in each other's lives and in parenting it's it's so obvious it's less obvious in more diffuse relationships, and yet we're still participating. We're still here together. That the phenomena, that the um, um, mystery of this moment is, is partly due to the participation of every person here. That the actual moment is different if not with different people. That the feel, the, the life, the meditation even that happens here is dependent on who happens to show up. If you're not here, it's a different meditation next week if you don't come. And I'm not saying good or bad, but just to start to be sensitive or aware. And of course, we can notice it more as we interact. 
it's usually more noticeable this participation when we actually talk to one another or if we're doing business with one another or we you know somebody falls down in the street and we all of a sudden we're helping them up or or whatever it might be and i guess partly this theme's coming through because you know we were staying in a hotel in denver and we were went to the theater and we and and i was just quite aware of all the different people who were participating in my life who I didn't know at all, right? I mean, whether it's whoever it might be, person driving a cab or the, you know, the person who takes you to your seat when you're going to the theater or, or in a restaurant if somebody's serving you food. We're all participating with one another. And if we're not present, if we're not mindful, we might not even notice other people. We might not notice what's actually happening here. The, the people are participating who aren't even in the room. <laughs> right? Right? We, we, we hear people. We're impacted by one another. And all of this is a little bit to get back to the idea of what does it mean to be mindful? What is, what is it that uh, we learn through mindfulness? What is the result of mindfulness if not a certain level of being present and being awake, being sensitive to our life as it's passing moment by moment? And, and we were just, we were in Denver for about three and a half days and so and it was just you know how it sometimes a trip is like it's just gone I mean I thought I was going to have a bunch of time off and it was like it's just it's like liquid our lives it's just being or it's like those time sand clocks you know our lives are just going can we be here to participate in them. And so mindfulness becomes an incredibly important gift that we can give ourselves and we can give one another, which is ultimately our being able to be present or our presence in the moments of our life. A clinical... <clears throat> Excuse me, a clinical psychiatrist questioned Suzuki Roshi about consciousness. He was asking him a deep question about consciousness. And Suzuki Roshi said, I don't know anything about consciousness. He said, I just try and teach my students to hear the birds sing. You know, we might not notice that. We might not notice the birds singing if we're not present if we're not awake to this moment. In the play, the play begins, it was actually the diary of Anne Frank. My daughter was playing Anne Frank. And, the, and I go to Holland regularly to teach. And so the play begins and it's a stormy night in Amsterdam. And I, I know Amsterdam pretty well. And so you hear the storm and then you hear all these birds. And I'm listening and I'm like thinking, I never hear any birds like that in Amsterdam. And, it, and the play was, the, that was the one thing that really felt off to me. <laughs> really, because at least where I, where I know in Amsterdam, and I know where the Anne Frank house is in Amsterdam, and I know that area, 
I've never heard those birds there. <laughs> Anyhow, I could be wrong. I'm open to that. Mindfulness also lets us not hold on too tightly to our ideas and our beliefs, and but to be present for it all. And so Suzuki Roshi just said, I just want to teach my students to hear the birds or to smell the fresh air or to taste our breath or to be sensitive to our life in some way, shape or form, moment by moment by moment. You know, we put mindfulness puts a tremendous value on now. A, a tremendous value on here, on this. And it doesn't, it doesn't prescribe how now should be or how here should be. It doesn't say, oh no, you're always supposed to have like an ecstatic experience or a blissful experience or a great experience or a bad experience or a difficult experience. It really asks of us a skill, a capacity of mind to be present with each experience, with the experience of the human life, which of course a little bit what being a parent asks of us. Or, or if we're sensitive to our partner, it means being present with them in their experience and their feelings and their happiness and joy and sorrow and suffering. Or with our friends, to be sensitive, to be open to what's actually true for somebody else. Or even if it's somebody we don't know, it means we're not just taking people for granted. We're, we're present, we're sensitive, we're alive to their experience, even when it's very different than ours. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to do anything about it. Maybe you'll do something about somebody's experience or, or not. You know, if I continue with the parenting thing, you know, sometimes, you know, you, the child falls down and you help it up. And sometimes the child falls down and you don't help it up. That's not actually what's needed. But the child needs to kind of get up on its own again, you know, and it's see that it's okay. And so there's no rule book about how to act. There's no rule book about experiences to have. The guidelines of mindfulness are all to help us be awake. And so the Buddha, this is from the teachings on mindfulness. He says bhikkhus. Bhikkhus means any, anybody who's a sincere practitioner is called the bhikkhu. Bhikkhu, this is the direct path for the purification of beings for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nirvana, nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. This is really the Buddha's invitation. He says in another chant, he uses the term ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. Come and, come and check it out. Try out these teachings of the four foundations of mindfulness. And he, he goes on, he says, what are the four here bhikkhus? A bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. 
Um, here, uh, the bhikkhu abides contemplating, contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware and mindful. One contemplates, one abides contemplating mind as mind, ardent, fully aware and mindful. One abides contemplating the objects of mind or the phenomena of experience, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. This is, this is just the first introductory paragraphs of the teachings on mindfulness. And so the, the Buddha invites us. He's, he, first, he, he gives a little what's called the lion's roar. He says, this is a direct path for the purifications of beings. For the purification of beings. What it, that word doesn't mean to be good, to be purified in that way. What it means is that we learn how to clarify our presence, to clarify our hearts and mind. Clarify doesn't mean so much to get rid of things as to clear, to, to begin to see clearly what's the depth of us, what, what are the capacities that are inherent to us as human beings, what happens when the mind is calm and clear and awake, what happens when the heart is free and open and sensitive, and how do we get there, how do we, how do we learn how to open our heart and, um, and um, uh, relax our mind so that the heart and the mind can function in the most at the most mature level that human beings know. One way, one way you might consider enlightenment or think about enlightenment is that the Buddha, first he matured in the ordinary ego sense, right? He became a prince and he tended to his kingdom and he did what he needed to do. And then when, he, when that wasn't enough for him, he went and sought another level of maturation that was beyond the ego, was beyond the self-centeredness of the usual ego orientation. And that there is another level of maturation for us that's available to us that is actually a delight for us to not be so um, bound to our self-centeredness. And it doesn't mean exactly it doesn't mean you have to kill the ego or deny the self or anything like that. It means we begin to see the depth of who and what we are and not simply get stuck on the surface of who and what we are. And so the Buddha, he says, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, this is his... Um, 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 exhortion to begin to see that it's possible to be free of suffering. The Buddha said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And of course, I want to be careful here, especially if you're new. Suffering doesn't mean there's no... Uh, the end of suffering doesn't mean there's no difficulty. Like the Buddha who was totally free, totally enlightened, still had a bad back as he got older and complained about it. Or at some points, the, the monks had a big fight between them. They, they started with two people and then people took sides and it's called a quarrel at Kosambi. And, it, 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 and the Buddha tries to mediate and he can't help. And he's like, ah, oh, 
I've had it. And he goes and leaves. He goes to the forest. He says, I'd rather be with the animals. They're much nicer to be with than these monks. So it's not like there's not problems. But there is the possibility of being with the what the Taoists call the 10,000 joys and sorrows of human life and being free. Not being bound to our joys. Not being bound to our sorrows but to find the freedom that the Buddha found to be in this world and yet not be bound to it. To learning the, the joy of letting go. Letting go of our ideas and our beliefs and our identifications and our opinions. And then see what it is that functions here as we slowly, patiently, kindly practice being present moment by moment by moment. It's this really interesting uh, convergence that, that it's a little bit magical. I can't quite explain it. But the more we can get present, the more we can actually be here, the more that freedom starts to show itself to us. The depth of what we are, the the goodness of what we are, the beauty and mystery of what we are is revealed as we get more present. And in some ways, I think it's why people really love babies. Um, again, continuing on this theme with the babies, babies often stop our minds and open our hearts. And if you're really with the baby, you're really there. And the babies are really there. Right? They haven't even learned how to not be there yet. <laughs> no, it's true. And so you get a transmission. It's like being with a really great teacher. Sometimes people get around the Dalai Lama and it, you know, it changes their lives. And it's the same with the baby. You get around the baby and they're just, you know, they're exactly where they are. And we want that capacity to be exactly where we are, but we want it with another level of maturity the babies don't have which is this capacity to be mindful. It's really the capacity to use our awareness to liberate our conditioning. And I, I'm not sure why that happens, but I trust that process totally, actually. And so the Buddha, as he says, letting go of suffering for the attainment of the true way for the realization of nirvana. And nirvana or nirvana is um, mostly characterized, the Buddha doesn't characterize it so much. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't describe it much. He talks about it in really a mysterious way because to try and fix it too much, already we've missed the mark. So you have all kinds of Zen stories where somebody says, you know, what, what is your realization? And the person starts to answer and then they hit him with a stick because you're not supposed to even try an answer. And, you know, if you're, if you're answering, you've already missed the mark. Or. But, but sometimes the Buddha would describe it as peace, ha the ultimate happiness, peace. Peace is probably the main phrase. And I know um, Deepama, who was this little... Indian woman who was a teacher of Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein. When Jack said, he asked her one time, what's, what's in her mind? And she said, 
um, concentration, love, and peace. And that's all that was in her mind. And she was she was quite a realized being, Deepama. Concentration, which means a oneness of body and mind, like she's really there. And then this peace, which the lack of agitation, the lack of anxiety, the absence of agitation, the absence of anxiety, um, the absence of wanting or not wanting, the absence of covetousness or grief, um, and love, metta, friendliness, kindness in all its forms. She was an amazing woman, Deepama. You can read a book. It, I don't know if the title got changed, but it, it was called a few years ago, it was called Knee Deep in Grace. And it's a story, it's stories about Deepama. And Deepama was really, uh, Deepa is her daughter's name, Deepama. Deepa, and and uh, yeah, she was probably one of the great beings of the last century. Uh, and you can read some of the stories are really wild uh, I'll, I'll just tell you one she got to practice because of a tremendous amount of loss and grief her, I can't remember the exact details but it was something like she'd lost her husband and then two children and she was so bereft she was not leaving her bed and somebody finally said go to this meditation teacher and she was living, she was an Indian woman she was living in Burma and she went to the meditation center and it said, at least the story goes, she, she was so um, drained by her grief that she had to crawl up the stairs. And that, um, and, but she had, as soon as she started practicing, something happened. And who knows how that happens, but um, within a week, she had a very deep enlightenment that she started practicing and it was very powerful and you know who knows past lives or karma or what, whatever it is or just the total openness of having lost so much which can happen with deep grief um, and, and then she became like the best student ever you know and uh, had magical powers and all kinds of cool things yeah, you can read some great stories in that book, Knee Deep in Grace. So, so the Buddha goes on. He says, what brings this? The four foundations of mindfulness. And it's a funny term, the four foundations of mindfulness. I've seen it a bunch of different ways, talked about it a bunch of different ways. Um, sometimes it's called the four foundations, sometimes the four establishments of mindfulness or the four frames of reference and they're really how we begin to organize our experience a little bit and it's one of the templates that the Buddha offered and say look at, look at this your experience in terms of the body or look at your experience in terms of feelings or look at your experience in terms of the um, atmosphere of mind or look at your experience in terms of what phenomena is arising now. In other words, a sound or a sight or a taste or a touch. 
and start to see what happens as you get as we become sensitive to experience on this level. So it's not so much about um, the narratives of our mind or the commentaries of our mind, because of course he says we practice um, ardent, uh, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief. Sometimes that's translated as grasping or, or uh, uh, aversion um, um, to the world. Mostly it means letting go of the world as we begin to pay attention to what's here on a more sensitive level, on a more fundamental level of what's here. So we're not paying attention so much to you know, what we think about things or how we think things should be or what our opinions are or what our memory is. We're actually starting to pay attention on a more fundamental level. And we start to notice what we think in terms of our memories or our plans or our worries or our fears as just that, as phenomena, rather than as our identity, rather than, oh, this is who I am. We start to pay attention to thought itself as a process rather than being simply in the thrall or, or enraptured by the uh, content of the th- uh, thought, by the narrative of the thought, which is mostly where we live. We live in our narrative. We live in our ideas and our beliefs and our opinions and our memories and our plans. And we miss something. Something gets missed in that. Those aren't bad things at all. But as Buddha Dasabhikkhu said, when he, he was asked about what did he think of the modern world, he answered in three words. He said, lost in thought. Lost in thought. And most of us are. We're, we're lost in thought. We lose touch with a more elemental contact with our aliveness, with our um, uh, um, beingness with something that's not our idea about ourselves, or not something that somebody told us about ourselves, or not even our conditioning, what happened to us, all of which is, has its place. But there's something more fundamental that mindfulness will bring us closer to. And that fundamentalness brings a different kind of knowing, a different kind of intelligence, a different kind of understanding than the understanding that comes through thinking. And this is a a more intuitive understanding, a more intuitive what is called insight, right? Mindfulness or vipassana is insight meditation. And it's this understanding, it comes at a moment of practicing and it's not linear. We practice and insights come when they want. They don't come at our agenda. But when they come, it's like, oh, or aha. And there may be some thought at that point Right? There may be some cognitive understanding, but we don't think our way there. It's more the allowing the intuitive and um, non-conceptual uh, capacities of our being begin to function at a, at a higher level than we're used to. Sometimes if we're involved in a, in a, in a discipline like the arts or athletics, that intuitive knowing starts to, we have a good sense of that intuitive knowing. Because it, 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 if we're functioning at a high level in any art or any discipline, 
that's what will come forward. That's what any discipline will reveal to us, whether it's painting or dancing or bike riding or swimming or basketball. You know, if you, if you look at a great sports figure, they're functioning. We love to watch sports figures or, or artists because they're functioning at a high level, and they're, but they're not doing it through thinking. That's not what's functioning. What we don't realize is that we might be able to live our lives more and more from this level, more fundamental level, that we may be able to raise children or have relationships or friendships or community or really what's needed is a whole world of, of uh, participation that is not just functioning from our thought, that starts to function from the depth and breadth of our heart and our mind and our being. Poem from Pablo Neruda. He says, we will now count to 12 and we will all keep still. We will now count to 12 and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would look at his hand, his hurt hands. Those who prepare wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade doing nothing. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go. To be mindful, to learn the skills of mindfulness asks us to do nothing. Asks us to stop. Asks us to pay attention to what is here. What is this phenomena? that we take for granted, that we're so busy doing with, that we're so busy thinking about, that we're so busy, you know, with our lives that we don't even sense or touch the people that we're participating in this life with for a very, very, very short time. You know, like I said, my little trip, it was like, right? It was whoosh. Just was, it's really what our lives are like. My Tibetan teacher, Sokni Rinpoche, said, oh, it's only at the end of our lives that we really understand time. And then we see it's like this. 
that the whole life is like that. And I mean, maybe if you look, if you're present, if we're present and we really look, and we look back right now at our lives, and we see that it's all gone, right? Every, everything that happened is gone. That all that's here is now, sitting here in this room. My trip to Denver, my daughter, the whole thing, it's gone. I mean, it was great. I'm not, not a bad thing. It's just the nature of the way things are. And that there's something about coming into alignment, coming into harmony with the way things are that's liberating. And mindfulness provides one of the tools, maybe the main tool, for this liberation, for this freedom, for this awakening. Well, I was hoping to get to the part where I talked about mindful, ardent, and fully aware, but maybe, maybe another week, next week. I think I'll end tonight from Ajahn Chah talking about mindfulness. He said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. You know, really just to be present with things as they are, moment by moment. Try to be mindful. Let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surrounding, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at, your, at the pool. And you will see many strange and wonderful things come and go. But you will be still. This, this stillness, this peace, is the happiness of the Buddha. Let's sit for a minute, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.